John chapter 18, and we're reading the first 27 verses. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. The servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was standing there warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way that you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Simon Peter stood warming himself. He was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. For a couple of years now, we've been going through John's Gospel in chunks. And we're starting the last chunk this morning 
chapters 18 up to 21. And it's great to be back in this book. It's a wonderful book. If you've been here over the last couple of years, we've really been enjoying it. Um, Let me pray. It's profound and deep, John's Gospel. It takes us right to, well, the heart of God and what he's doing through eternity. So let's, let's pray for his help as we come to look at his word. Our Father, we, um, we need the help of your Holy Spirit now as we look at the Bible to open up the pages to us, to open up our eyes and our hearts, to hear what you're saying and to respond. Lord, we, act, we ask that by your word, by your spirit, you would act in our lives now to change us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Um, it's very satisfying when a plan works out. We enjoy that in films, don't we? like the Shawshank Redemption, where it takes the guy 20 years, it's brilliantly planned, to escape from prison with a fortune stored up. Or like Ocean's Eleven, that's all about the plan, isn't it? When the robbery is oh so cleverly done, you enjoy it, you enjoy seeing it from start through to the finish. In real life, planning is more difficult, often our plans go astray. But still, when it comes off, very satisfying. If you've ever had to plan a project at work or a journey involving public transport or um, a social event or something like that, and it all comes off exactly as you had in mind. It's brilliant. We, we love it when a plan comes together. And in John 18, that's what we're going to see this morning, that God has a plan. We'll see what the plan is. Uh, and it's a plan that's been running throughout John's Gospel. And in chapter 18, it is coming to fruition is just great for us, isn't it? It's great for us to hear that this morning. It's really worthwhile hearing that. Because we need to know, what is God's plan? What's he up to? We want to know that. Why did Jesus come? What was his life really about? If you're here and you're investigating Christian things, these are exactly the sorts of questions that you will need to settle in your mind. What, is, what does Christianity say about who God is and what he's doing? Or if we are Christians, many of us, we still want to answer that kind of question. What is God up to? What is his plan? Sometimes that is born out of a a pain and a frustration as we look at our own circumstances. What what is God doing? Or that can be born out of an eagerness, an eagerness to be involved. If God has a plan, what's, what's my place in it? I want to be involved. So it's great that we see God's plan as we look at John 18 this morning. However, just before we zoom in on that, because we've been going through John for two years and we haven't been in it since the autumn, since just before Christmas, it's hard for us to hold the whole message of the book in our minds. It'll be helpful for us to recap what the overall idea in John is, how he wrote the book and why. If you're a student, this is good stuff because this counts as revision. Um, Please could you turn to chapter 20. Arguably the key paragraph in the book is the end of chapter 20, Um, as John explains how he wrote and why. Let me read that from verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's explanation of how and why he wrote. He presents the evidence, he says, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and so have life in his name. It's a a three-step thing. Evidence, faith, life. 
That's how John works. He presents the evidence. John was an eyewitness. He was a friend of Jesus, a close friend and associate for three years. He heard everything Jesus said. I'm the bread of life, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the light of the world. He heard all of it. He saw everything that Jesus did. Healing the sick, raising the dead, water into wine. As John presents the evidence, he is a credible source. But he's not just trying to inform or entertain us. He's asking us to make our minds up. He wants us to believe him to come to the conclusion that he came to on the strength of the same evidence that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Messiah. He's asking us to make our minds up. Who do you think he is? And do you trust him, this Jesus? And the third aspect, John says we need to do that. We need to decide that because life is on the line. Life, eternal life, says John which doesn't just mean life that goes on forever. It does mean that, but it means more than that. It was, we'll see, in John's mind. Eternal life means life in touch with the eternal God. It's about quality of life as well as quantity. It means knowing God, enjoying him, seeing his glory. Um, That's how John works. Evidence, faith, life. That's where he's trying to take us overall in this book. And so, if you turn back, please, turn back to John 18. We'll look at this chapter now, and we'll see how it fits into that overall framework. Like I said, the big idea here is that God has a plan that is coming to fruition, but it'll help us to to break things down into a couple of steps. We need to see, first of all, that there is a plan, and then secondly, what that plan is. That's the logic this morning. I didn't say that in the first service, it was very unclear. That's, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that there is a plan, first of all, and then what this plan is. Right, so the first thing that John shows us is that there is a plan, and he does that in the story, in the events here, by showing us that Jesus has control amid the chaos. Okay? As we as you, um, look back over the, over the verses, we see that Jesus has control amid the chaos. The scene starts off well enough. Uh, Jesus has just finished speaking with his disciples for four chapters and they leave, they go out and they're in an olive grove just outside the city. It seems like rich people in Jerusalem had these walled enclosures outside the city limits. In a walled city like Jerusalem, space was at a premium and for various other reasons these guys had, had areas they could go to for barbecues and whatnot outside the city. Um, and there's olive trees there it's on a hillside, and what a great scene. It's a Mediterranean evening, outside of the city with your friends in the garden, and it's nice. But then a group of armed men arrives, very unwelcome. It's like you're having a picnic in the meadows, and, some, and suddenly you're surrounded by men. It's very threatening. And these men are armed. John says they're soldiers. And the word that he uses, the military word, indicates that there would have been a lot of them, possibly hundreds of them, maybe 100 or 200. The word can mean up to 600. Maybe there wasn't that many, but we do know from history that the Romans were in favour of overwhelming force. These guys turn up, they are armed, and we feel the sense of threat that now hangs in the air. I don't know if you get that. There's a feeling that I get in my stomach when I see an armed policeman Maybe you're at the airports, they often have them, or in London or abroad. You see an armed policeman, and you know that they're not there for you, 
but still, <laughs> I, there's something threatening about it, isn't there? An armed man. Well, here there are hundreds of them, armed with swords and torches. And Jesus and his friends are now surrounded. And worse, this mob that has appeared is led by Judas, a guy who had been with them. He'd been a friend of Jesus, a friend for some time. And it looks, though, awfully like here he is betraying them. And they'd get that slightly sickening sense of what is happening with Judas. And then worse, maybe, there are some officials from the chief priests there, the sworn enemies of Jesus who've been after him for quite a while now. And it seems now that they'll get their man. So we feel, we feel the sense of threat as we look at the scene that John portrays here. It's a volatile situation. From the way that it's written, Jesus goes into the garden and then out, probably a walled enclosure. And so imagine that in your mind. It's a walled garden with olive trees on a slope in the night time with armed men with swords and torches. It's a recipe for mayhem, running, fire, shouting, bloodshed. But we start to see, as we really look at the passage, that in quite an eerie way, in spite of the threat, in spite of the volatility here, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control amid the chaos. For a start, he knew that um, he was going to be betrayed by Judas. He knew that. He predicted that very precisely. And he's not hiding. He goes to this place that was a well-known haunt of his. Judas knew that. Jesus knew that Judas knew that. And yet he went there anyway. He wasn't hiding. And then pick up, have a look down please, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? He has the initiative. He knows what's going to happen. He says, who are you after? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, yep, that's me, I'm right here. And then, notice what happens next, it's easy to miss this little detail, I wonder if you spotted it as Robin read in verse 6, that as Jesus says, yeah, I am Jesus, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now that is weird. You have a standoff here between the skinny preacher and the armed mob. And yet, with just a word, Jesus flattens his enemies. What is going on here? It's very strange. It's eerie. Well, if you've been tracking through in John's Gospel over the time, or if you know the book, you'll know that these words, I am, are very significant. As Jesus says, I am he, just I am, actually, that's all he says. It's the divine name, Yahweh, the name of God, the personal name of God in the Old Testament. And throughout John, Jesus has been applying that to himself, claiming to be Yahweh, I am. That's why the Jews have been accusing him of blasphemy. And here, as Jesus answers his name, as he something is seen of the weight of the glory of those words, I am, and his enemies are bowled over. It's an odd scene. You wouldn't be taking bets on it. The skinny preacher versus the armed mob, and he flattens them. 
with his name. And then we go on. You see that Jesus is in control. He gives them a second chance at arresting him. It's very sporting of him. And once they finally manage that, he says, and by the way, my friends are going free now, right? Which is absurd, because he's just been arrested by an armed mob. He's not really in a position to be issuing orders, and especially not ones like that, that are very unlikely. I I mean, if you're arresting a suspected uh, rebel, you're going to bring in his followers, his associates, at least for questioning. I mean, that's obvious. But Jesus is in total control here. He says, it's fine, you've got me, I'm the one you wanted. Now my friends will go free. And they do. Only one of his friends has his own ideas. Peter pulls out a sword and he takes a swing at one of the people there, one of the servants of the high priest. He chops off his ear, which I'm pretty sure is his right ear, which tells us two things. Probably Peter was left-handed. Somebody made that point after the first service. That's probably right. If you're chopping off someone's right ear, you're probably left-handed. More importantly, it means he tried to kill him. Uh, that's, that's true. If, if you swing a sword at someone's head hard enough to chop their ear off, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's attempted murder. And that's a volatile situation. And you've got armed men, and it's tense. And it's a powder keg waiting for a spark. And surely this is it. You know, surely Peter is going to set the whole thing off. This is all about to erupt in violence, but no. Jesus keeps a lid on it. He says, Peter, put that sword away. Will I not drink the cup my father has given me? And none of the armed men retaliate. Jesus is in control. And so by verse 12, while we get there, it's a really odd scene. Jesus is arrested, he's bound, he's led away, and yet he is in total control here. Now, if this is true, and remember that John was there on the night, if this is a fair representation of what happened, then think about evidence, faith, life. This is striking evidence as to who Jesus Christ was and is. Who is this man who flattens the crowd who've come against him with just the word of his own name? Who is this man who knew what would happen, who was in total control? Who is he? But what John's really showing us here, I think, as we see the control that Jesus has amid the chaos, is that God has a plan. This is not, these are not events that happened to happen. As we read through John, these are no surprise. All the way through in John, it's been saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, until now. It's actually, it comes at the start of chapter 17. Father, the time has come. This is it. This is what John's Gospel had been building up to. It's planned. And that's why Jesus isn't phased here. Because things are working out exactly as he knew they would, as he intended, according to plan. Now, at a very general level, this is a really important reminder for us here this morning about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Jesus is in charge of He has a plan that he is working out in all situations. When things look happy and seem to be going well, Jesus is in charge. But even where there is evil and betrayal 
and the threat of violence and where there is fear, where his friends are in danger, where Jesus' people are afraid and they seem, it seems to them like everything is going wrong. Even in situations like that, Jesus has a plan and he stays in control. That's what it means for God to be sovereign, for God to be God over this world and over everything that happens, everything. Which, for those of us who know this God this morning, is a massive comfort, isn't it? That there's nothing outside of his control, that he has a plan, and he is able to fulfil it. It's massive comfort. When everything seems to be going wrong, it's not. When life seems to be out of control, it isn't. Because God retains control amid the chaos. He is working out his plan. And I expect that's a reminder that some of us here this morning will really need as we think about our lives. But that's quite a general point. There is a plan. Jesus has control. To understand what the plan is, we need to move on and see the second thread in what John is showing us here, which is this. The second thread is this. Jesus is laying down his life to save his people. He has control... What is he doing with that control? He is laying down his life to save his people. There are three things that show us that in the passage. First of all, verses 8 and 9. Please have a look at that. This is where he offers himself again to be arrested and they take him this time and Jesus says to them, it's me you want, now let my friends go. And that is a wonderful picture isn't it, of Jesus offering himself for a rest and everything he knows that will follow on from that. He offers himself to that fate so that his friends will go free. It's a picture of what Jesus came to do, to give himself for the freedom of his people, to save them. And John Comments. You see that in verse 9. We'll come back to this. This is really important. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. That's the plan of God in a nutshell, but we'll come back to that. The um, second way that John highlights in this passage that Jesus is laying down his life for his people is in verse 11. When he tells Peter to put the sword away, he says, Shall I not drink the cup? my Father has given me. Over Easter we were looking at Matthew's Gospel and if if you were here, Andy Robertson was explaining this and he he read from the Old Testament background to this idea of the cup of God. It's horrifying. From the Psalms. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth will drink it down to its very dregs. And then from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we build up this picture of a cup of confusion and sickness and pain and judgment. This is the cup of judgment that the enemies of God, that sinful people, that we should by rights drink And yet Jesus says here, as he goes to his death, I'm drinking the cup. On the cross, I'm going to face the anger, the sentence 
that my people deserve so that they don't have to. I'm going to do that for them. I'm going to drink the cup so that they don't have to. He's giving his life to save his people. And then in verses 12 to 14, we have the third thing. The third way that that John shows us what Jesus is doing as he goes to his death. He is first taken to the high priest. And we're reminded, John just happens to remind us of something that the high priest had said back in chapter 11. There had um, been some discussion in chapter 11 about the threat that Jesus was causing to the Jewish people. He was causing a stir. And the authorities, the chief priests and the authorities are worried that the Romans are going to respond, they're going to crack down, maybe they'll destroy the temple. And this guy, the high priest, he says, let's not take the risk. Let's just kill him. Let's not take the risk. It's much better. Isn't it a better trade-off that one man dies for the people? And John here again is highlighting the irony that from the lips of Jesus' most bitter enemy comes a perfect explanation of his death, that he dies on behalf of the people. Now remember John's overall message, evidence, faith, life. Jesus is the one who gives us life through his death. But think back please to verse 9 and the explanation there. We've seen that God has a plan. We're seeing what that plan is. Jesus is saving his people by laying down his life. And just at the end of verse 9, it really sums up in a powerful way from John what that plan is. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. You see, it's plan language. I have lost none of those you gave me. That's the plan in John. I have lost none, not one, of those you gave me. He's he's referring back there to chapter 6. Let me read to you. You don't need to turn there. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. The lie shall that I shall lose none of all the people he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That's why Jesus came. Because his father had given him a people and he would lose none of them, but would raise them up at the last day. Let me read to you from chapter 10. Again, if you're happy just to listen. Jesus has just said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then we read, some of the Jews had gathered around him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's the plan. 
um, God the Father has given a people, a flock, to the Son. A clearly defined group, the sheep of Jesus. He knows them. He will call them out and they will recognise his voice and come to him and he will save them and they will be with him forever. That is God's plan. And then chapter 17, it's where we left off in the autumn. Have a look at this one. Chapter 17, as Jesus begins to pray in verse 1. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. It's the same plan, isn't it? That God the Father has given to the Son a people, and the Son will save them, and they will have eternal life, knowing God, enjoying God, seeing his glory. That's the plan that we see in John 18 is coming to fruition. Now, what does, this, what does this say to us? This is the plan of God, that there is a people, a clearly defined group, who in eternity past were betrothed to the Son by the Father. And the Son promises to pay whatever price to have them as his own. What difference does this make to you and I? Well, it'll raise questions. It raises big questions. Is this true? Is this real, what Jesus says about eternal life and knowing God forever? Is it really true that there are some people who will experience that forever and others who will not? Is it really true that God has a people, his sheep, and others who are not? It's big questions for us as we come to John this morning. It takes us out of the normal list of our concerns. It shows us something bigger. The eternal plan of God. Is that true? For others, it will bring a sense of wonder as we see this plan of God unfolding. As we see it stretching from eternity past and the transaction between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past stretching through into eternity future when his sheep will be with him forever, knowing him. Breeds a sense of wonder. God has this eternal plan. And if you're a Christian, he's made you a part of it. Hard to get your head around, isn't it? That there is a plan between the eternal Father and the eternal Son and you have been caught up in it. If you're a Christian, you're involved. And you know now that for all eternity, because you are his, you will see what he wanted you to see, which is himself, his glory. Now, it's got to shape our hearts. If we're Christians, that has got to reshape our hearts, at least a little bit. God's plan stretches out before us as far as the eye can see, from eternity past to eternity future. And he's made you part of it if you're a Christian. 
And that's got to make us humble, thankful, hopeful. We can learn in life to view our worries against the backdrop of that eternal plan, our family worries, money worries, work problems, relationship worries, health. Those things don't go away, but we see them behind the, in front of the backdrop of the eternal transaction between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. It helps, doesn't it? It gives us some perspective, lifts our eyes. Also, as we think about evangelism, it seems like a bit of a burden sometimes, doesn't it? A thankless task, very poor prospect. Well, when Jesus dies, he, as he gave himself up to these events, he wasn't acting on a wing and a prayer, hoping, against hope, that somehow things would work out, hoping that someone somewhere would respond. This is the fruition of an eternal plan. There are those whom the Father has given to the Son and they will hear his voice and they will respond and they will be with him forever, knowing him. Jesus says, I will lose none of those whom my Father has given me. And that does change our prospects, doesn't it? that we know that there are those whom the Father has given to the Son and they will respond and we must simply pass on his voice, his call and not one will be lost. We just need to find them. There is a, a third, a final aspect to this passage. We've only, well, not even covered half of it but we're going to stop. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, it's better to enjoy a snack than to rush a meal. We'll come back to this. It links into some things back in chapter 13. You see, as Jesus is arrested and Peter goes after him, and then Peter's challenged about being one of his friends, and he denies it three times. It's pathetic. It's so like us. He's a coward. And it links into a load of stuff in chapter 13, and also forward into chapter 21. So when we get to the end of the book, we'll have a look at that. So I'm sorry if you feel short change this morning, but it's better to quit while you're ahead. Um, I'm sure you'll agree. So let me just sum up what we've seen this morning, and then we'll stop. We've seen that God has a plan that is wide and deep and loving and unstoppable. That in eternity past, the Father and the Son decided that they would have a people to be with him forever, to see his glory. The Father betrothes to the Son a people and the Son comes to redeem them, to rescue his bride, his church. Even at the cost of his life. And so, in the garden, Jesus lets himself be arrested and lets himself be tried and lets himself be killed. Because that's the plan. That's the price to have his people forever. Forever. Let's pray. Father, in the light of your eternal glory 
your eternal kindness. What can we say? We bow before you this morning as the sovereign God. We bow before you as the God who is far above us in your plans and in your love. We praise you again for the price that Jesus was willing to pay to lay down his life for his sheep, to have his people, his bride, forever. Lord, we pray that we would have eyes to see these glorious realities that what is, what is biggest in the universe would also be biggest in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we finish, we're going to sing before the throne of God above. We're going to praise God. Hallelujah. That's what that means. Praise the Lord. Praise this God for the goodness of his plan. I guess we'll have sung the words of before the throne of God above. We've sung those many times before, lots of us. But as we see from John, John fills in the backgrounds, the eternal background, to what it means that Jesus came and died for us, that we might know him. So let's enjoy those words as we sing them and stand together.